Welcome to the Criterion Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing those titles chosen by the Criterion Collection for preservation. I'm Nate Myers, joined by Matt Peterson, as we discuss the 1994 documentary Hoop Dreams on tonight's episode. The lives of two ordinary inner-city Chicago boys became the focus of documentarians Steve James, Frederick Marks, and Peter Gilbert from 1987 to 1991. Focusing on the high school years of William Gates and Arthur Agee, Hoop Dreams began as a small project meant to be shot in three weeks for a 30-minute airing on PBS. However, it soon grew to encompass a much larger vision as director Steve James and his co-producers Peter Gilbert and Frederick Marks worked together to secure funding and document the lives of not only its young basketball stars, but also their families and the world of sports and inner-city life as the 20th century entered into its twilight. More than just a chronicle of athletic ambition, Hoop Dreams emerges as one of the most ambitious and successful documentaries of all time, tackling subjects of family, socioeconomics, education, or in a word, life. Premiering at the Sundance Film Festival in January of 1994, the documentation of these formative years in the lives of William Gates and Arthur Agee was greeted with enthusiastic praise and garnered numerous awards, as well as becoming the best-reviewed film of 1994. Famously snubbed by the Academy Awards for a Best Documentary Feature nomination, Hoop Dreams nonetheless emerged as a great success commercially, as it earned $11 million at the box office, despite being not only a documentary, but nearly three hours in length. The film's impact on documentary filmmaking lives on to this day, as its visceral storytelling expanded audiences' expectations of what documentary filmmaking can achieve. Released by the Criterion Collection on DVD in 2005, and updated to Blu-ray by the collection in 2015 with additional supplements, the life of William Gates and Arthur Agee is preserved for many years to come. Just in time for March Madness, fill out your brackets and join Matt and me as we discuss Hoop Dreams. I'll immediately say I'm not sure how tonight's discussion is going to go. This is our first time tackling a documentary film on the podcast. So this might be a short discussion. It might take on a life of its own. I'm not really 100% certain where to go with it. But I thought, A, it's worth, I think, us exploring documentaries because they're a part of filmmaking and part of cinema. So it's worth maybe just discussing this. And this one in particular I thought might be a good place to start because Hoop Dreams, despite being a documentary, in many ways does play like a traditional narrative. So I thought it might be one of the easier ones to start if we're going to actually attempt a discussion on a documentary, particularly if we want to tackle some of the other documentaries in the collection at a later date. Um, I, I guess I'm not sure what your familiarity with this film is. For me, it might well be the first documentary film I ever saw I actually remember going to the theater and seeing it in 1994 with my friend Colin McDougal. We would have been in, I think, sixth grade at the time, and neither one of us knew what we were watching. Uh, we, we, I think we're under the impression we were going to be seeing a movie like Hoosiers. <laughs> we both just happened to like basketball a lot, 
I don't think either of us knew it was three hours long. And I don't think either of us, not only did we not know it was a documentary, I don't know that, at least for me, I had ever seen a documentary other than perhaps maybe having seen something in class for a brief little bit of time. You know, certainly nothing as long as this. Yeah. So I wasn't, I remember as a kid not really knowing what to make of it, uh, but nonetheless being fascinated by it. Uh, I can still recall Colin having the same reaction, um, being there saying, well, this doesn't make sense. Like you could see the boom mic and you could see the camera and a reflection. You know, none of us really quite understood it as uh, as a documentary and how a documentary worked at the time. Uh, but it stuck with me. And years later, I saw it again on PBS, uh, maybe three, four years down the road. Really struck me even more at that time. And it's been a film that has stayed with me at different points in time over the years. So I'm not sure. What are your experiences with Hoop Dreams? Oh, mine are similar. I, I didn't see in the theater, but I, I do recall seeing it when it was broadcast on PBS. I think that that was my first exposure to it. And I, I want to say I even saw some of it uh, in school. I, I think it was maybe even partially shown uh, in grade school at some point. But uh, even though I can't specifically recall exactly where I first saw it, it's always been one of those films that um, has just kind of always been there in, in my memory in some ways. I mean, it's uh, certainly probably the most celebrated American documentary I can think of. And it, it's always something that's referenced or you see clips of it here and there as kind of this this classic film. So I can't really remember a time where I, I um, where it hasn't been part of, you know, the collective American, you know, cinematic uh, consciousness, if you want to call that. So, uh, revisiting it now was interesting because I haven't seen it for many years, and and now I kind of have the the lens of looking at it more critically. I guess I think part of the the success of the film is simply a matter of timing. You know, when yeah. you're the first to do something, naturally you're going to have a much bigger impact, right? So, the Beatles, for example, coming over to America when they did being this band, doing this kind of music at that time, if they'd been beat by somebody else, that other somebody would have been the one that would have taken the role of the Beatles in terms of our memory, right? Mm -hmm. And so this film in many ways has that going for it, right? It was the first major documentary to really resonate with audiences and I think expose us to documentaries as being something more than stock footage and talking heads reflecting on something. So yeah. uh, most documentaries of that era that people would have been seeing, and certainly in the years before, it would have been consisting almost primarily of interviews and pretty much just been grabbing different footage, maybe of World War II or of the Vietnam War, whatever it might have been, right? And a lot of voiceover narration. This has some of that, but it certainly expands and spends a lot more time just following these people around. Mm -hmm. And that was something I think audiences really hadn't seen. And it, it opened up a whole different way of seeing a documentary for an audience. So I think in no small part, a lot of its uh, immediate fanfare comes from that, right? Just being situated at the right place at the right time. But I think there's also more to it. Uh, for some reason that, like you said, Matt, for both of us, it seems it's a movie that has hit us. And I don't know that it hit us simply because it was a, the first documentary we saw of this nature. That's probably part of it. But there's also, I think, something to the fact that it does touch on a 
real sense of the human experience. You know, this could have been easily written and produced as a document or as a, excuse me, as a fiction film, as a narrative film, yeah. instead of a straightforward documentary. And I don't know that anybody would have responded to it quite the same way. Uh, people probably would have criticized its length, right? Oh mm-hmm. my gosh, why'd you take three hours with this? Uh, the fact that it followed two of these young men, as opposed to just settling in on one, probably would have been seen as a problem. I think the fact that it was really documenting a side of life that perhaps people knew was there but never saw up front uh, is part of its success. And also the fact that the the filmmakers, uh, these three gentlemen, uh, Steve James, Frederick Marx, and Peter Gilbert, the fact that they were aware of the fact that this was not their world uh, comes through in the filmmaking so that there isn't a pretension, there isn't a an assumption that we have already an agenda of what we're going to find and what we're going to do, where so many other documentaries are clearly victims of confirmation bias, yeah. right? You're you're already having in your mind what you're going to do. This one doesn't have that. I think it allows us to explore a world and observe it uh, and learn about it kind of as the filmmakers themselves are learning about it. And so that sense of being exposed to something, I think, is really where it comes from or where its success comes from. Yeah, I think its production history really explains why that's the case. You know, I mean, like you said in the opening there, it started out as a 30-minute PBS special. I mean, that was the original intent. And I I think the filmmakers realized they had something more um, substantial on their hands. So it was kind of an organic process for this film to develop on its own. So they they probably didn't have time to infuse any kind of maybe political angle or or motivation from a content standpoint because they were just, I, I don't know, maybe they were caught off guard in terms of the power of what they were capturing. And I think that comes through very well in the film and, and makes the film stronger for it. It it really does take the time to present these people in these situations as they are and allows the audience to, to draw their own conclusions, whether good or bad. I mean, we, we see uh, really the whole scope of the human experience here, right? I mean, uh, not to get... Um, uh, not to put too much hyperbole on it, but... I mean, there are uh, great triumphs and great tragedies in this film, and I think that's what makes it relatable, even if you don't care about sports. I mean, I'm not a huge sports fan, uh, but regardless of what you, you know, how you feel about sports or basketball, there's things in here that everyone can relate to. I mean, just the the pursuit of, of a dream. I mean, hopefully all of us have some kind of goal or some kind of dream we aspire to, and and it, it's really those um, those basic universal themes that that make this film i think resonate with so many people um but uh, yeah I, I mean there's there's a lot to explore here obviously uh in terms of the the main i almost want to call them characters than my characters they're real people uh their uh their economic situation challenges and uh the challenges of their environment and uh yeah, it's it's a window into a world that that a lot of people weren't aware of. Um, so it, it's interesting. I, I think it's important to know the background of this film uh, and how it was made because it does really explain the final product to a great degree. And I think for any documentary, that's good to be the case, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, a true documentary is documenting something, right? And so it isn't trying to create. A, 
like a, say a news story, uh, a perspective or something. It's it's just simply absorbing, ciphering through it. But I think maybe this is just something before we delve into some of the specifics of the film itself. Let's maybe just talk about documentary filmmaking and ideas about that. I don't know how well-defined my ideas of documentaries are, but I think certainly there's a wide range of approaches to it, right? You could go with the Michael Moore approach, which is very much firebrand and is not meant to necessarily uh, even convince somebody with a dis- disagreement. I think you know his kind of filmmaking as a documentary is really designed for the crowd. It's, it's preaching to its choir. Uh, it, it's, it knows its audience, and it's just kind of content with that. Then you have someone like Errol Morris, who uh, really, I think, is just curious about human eccentricities and really just wants to delve into the mind of his subject, whether that's something like the, the um, say, uh, Secretary McNamara, right, and his The Fog of War, or if it's going to be something like The Thin Blue Line, which is delving into that subject of, say, Texas uh, criminal system, right, criminal justice. You know, he really just wants to delve into that world and, and figure out what's there. And then you have, of course, just a plethora of documentaries made on quick and interesting subjects, right? So that maybe aren't as substantive, but people just are kind of grabbing a camera and running with it, right? So I think this uh, is just an interesting point for us maybe to consider what is the purpose of a documentary? What is the value that this style, or I don't even know if that's the right word for it, uh, but what what do documentaries offer to cinema? Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a big question. I mean, I've, I guess I don't want to say I haven't been a fan of documentaries. It's just not my favorite genre. I I enjoy um, fictional narrative films a lot more, I guess. But documentaries, I think, are important. And there's a lot of people that are very passionate about documentaries. And I mean, much like fictional films, you can really take, uh, very measured neutral approach or you can take a a very opinionated approach and i think most i I feel like most documentaries made nowadays do have very specific political agendas uh and it's it's hard for a filmmaker's bias not to come through in the work uh but yeah the different styles of documentaries are uh interesting i mean there, there is a lot of room within that genre to kind of present your voice as a filmmaker i mean i think hoop dreams while revolutionary for its time may seem kind of vanilla to a lot of people now because we are used to the style it employs. Um, Whereas you're still seeing people like Errol Morris working and kind of pushing the envelope in terms of what a documentary is. I mean, Errol Morris and even his early films kind of do this like thin blue line, you know, will he'll have the standard talking heads, but, very cinematic stylized reenactments intercut with, with that material. Uh, so that's kind of a style in and of itself. Um, and then, you know, something like burden of dreams is similar to uh, hoop dreams in that it's, it's quite uh, more of a verite presentation of the material. Um, but even someone like, like Joshua Oppenheimer, uh, who did uh, act of killing and uh, I think look of silence was kind of his follow up kind of takes the Errol Morris formula into this subversive new level. I don't know if you've seen any of his films, but, uh, I haven't. Yeah. 
I mean, it's Act of Killing in particular is, I mean, it's one of the most disturbing films I've ever seen, but it will take the device of reenactment to kind of a twisted new level uh, because he's using the actual people that were involved in the events in the reenactments. Uh, so it takes on almost this meta quality uh, that adds a new dimension to, to documentary film. So I, it's, it's a genre, I think, that has certainly an important place in, in cinema, uh, but traditionally not one I have really followed or, or, um, or you know, had as much interest in as, say, narrative film. I would agree. My, obviously, the vast majority of movies made, the vast majority of movies that I will watch are going to be your traditional narrative fiction or based on a true story kind of movies, right? Mm-hmm. And so not a documentary. Now, I think documentaries naturally have a place in cinema because we have them all the way back to the silent era. This is not a new thing. In fact, you could think of the first movies that were being made by Thomas Edison as being a sort of documentary. I mean, it wasn't narrative at any stretch, but you know, a, just a documentation of a man walking or talking or, you know, or just twirling his mustache. So it's not a specifically a work of fiction, right? And so really, I mean, this is a very natural part of cinema, and it's going to continue to be a part of it. Certainly a a good documentary really strikes a chord with me. I think of something like Hoop Dreams, but there's plenty of others. Uh, some of my favorite films of the past 20 years have been documentaries. Uh, the King of Kong, which is this fascinating documentary about two men that are obsessed with uh, Donkey Kong. And uh, Spellbound is this exhilarating film. Uh, about the National Spelling Bee. So there's a lot of great work that's being done in documentaries. O.J. Made in America uh, was one of, I think, the best films of the past five years. And it's this really expansive seven-hour documentary, right? Or maybe even longer than that. I can't remember now. Uh, But truly a remarkable work. But I also think it's worth saying, well, what, what makes a documentary worthwhile? Why is it better to say make something as a documentary as opposed to say hey there's this true story let's make a film about the true story like you would say do an adaptation of the life of napoleon or something like that right yeah and i suppose part of it is because uh the point of cinema is to to capture truth i think at the end of the day now you can't ever capture it in total but you can capture it uh to some degree and I think if you made, say, the story of William Gates and Arthur Agee as just a typical narrative film, like a Hoosiers or uh, the, the Coach Carter with uh, Samuel Jackson, like these, these other basketball films that have been made, uh, I don't know that it necessarily captures the reality the same way the documentary does. Uh, there's always something different when an actor is taking these parts, right? And a writer is going to want to... Uh, create a speech uh, and you know, add certain layers to it that wouldn't really be there in real life. Uh, so to, may I highlight an example just taken from Hoop Dreams? I'm thinking of William Gates who uh, goes to St. Joseph's Catholic School uh, for high school. He's not really there for the academics, right? He's there simply for his basketball talent. Mm-hmm. But he has this interesting relationship with the coach, Gene Ping- Pingator. And it's kind of a mentor relationship but it's also tense, 
And when they finally come together at the end, as the four years of him being in that school have uh, come to a close, he's going off to Marquette to, to be a player there and to be a student there. Uh, they kind of talk to each other, kind of don't. They don't really resolve anything. You could tell there's stuff that wants to be said but isn't being said, uh, that Gates would love to maybe say something to Pingator but doesn't. And it seems so much better than what would be caught in a movie because if we're doing a narrative, we'd want to have him say something. We'd have to have some line of dialogue that would have to be added in. And this, by having it recorded as a documentary, allows you to see perhaps human interaction in a far more realistic way. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's something that it does potentially offer uh, and expands upon the, la- the overall language of cinema in a worthwhile way that's worthy of consideration for anybody who really takes the art form seriously. Yeah, I don't envy documentary filmmakers. I think they have a real challenging task. I mean, unless you're making a film about uh, an event that has occurred in the past and you're presenting it like a more traditional, you know, say Ken Burns historical documentary. I mean, not to say anything that Ken Burns does is uh, an easy task either with uh, the expansive films that he makes. Uh, But, you know, when the filmmakers started making this, I'm sure they didn't know what was going to happen, right? I mean, this is something that's unfolding, and and it takes kind of a leap of faith to to say, well, hopefully there's a film here. You know, you can spend years shooting a film, a documentary, and you're hoping and praying that there's enough substance in there to make a compelling story. So I, I do think there's a lot of risk involved in making um, a more verite-style documentary such as this. Uh but yeah, I mean, you had the opportunity to to capture life in, in a more realistic way. Uh, you're stripping stripping away the artifice that a, a, a fictional narrative film would add to it. But at the same time, I always wonder about you know the presence of the camera and how that interferes in what we're seeing too. Because I mean, people are going to be more self conscious. They may say things they wouldn't normally say because the camera's rolling right in front of them. Uh, so. It, even though this is recording reality in quotation marks, uh, so to speak, you do. Yeah. There's always that question of how is, how is the presence of the camera affecting what is, what is happening? Uh, and that's, that's always something to, to consider with any documentary as well. It's a very good point of well worth considering. I think they call it the observer's effect, right? Whenever you observe something, it naturally is going to potentially impact that thing, and you can't ever know what would have happened if you hadn't observed it. Mm-hmm. And that's very true here, right? I mean, obviously, some of the grand things would have happened independent of the camera being there, right? Yeah. Uh, so the AGs uh, not being able to afford tuition, and then Arthur being kicked out of St. Joseph's and then going uh, back to Marshall, right, to be in school there. That would have happened with or without the cameras. But how do they react uh, in these interviews? What do they do with the camera on them. Some of it is, I'm sure, playing for the camera, even on a subconscious level, right? And there's also going to be just the fact that uh, there's things that don't make the final cut, right? I mean, they've recorded this over the course of five years. Uh, That's a lot of footage. And three hours is a long film, but that's, think think of my life the last five years. 
condensing it to three hours? How do you pick three hours and decide what's really relevant, what's really not? And what are the things the filmmakers themselves have access to over those five years? They weren't filming 24-7. It's not like they just had complete access to these lives. Yeah. Uh, what are the things that's very telling in this film? So as we see it, you know, Gates and A.G., these two guys part ways once Arthur leaves the St. Joseph's. And we never really have any sense that they've actually talked to one another, seen one another, have any connection. Late in the film, uh, one of the recruiters that had been there at the very beginning when they were just getting out of grammar school to go to high school uh, decides to take Arthur to a St. Joe's basketball game and he sees William. We see them meet up, connect with each other. You get the sense maybe this is the first time they've reunited after a couple of years. Well, lo and behold, unbeknownst to the filmmakers... The two of them would occasionally get together without anybody knowing just to kind of talk about what was going on in the movie, right? So there's a whole story that isn't being documented at the same time as well. So, you know, the idea that this is a perfect encapsulation of reality is, you know, it's 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 presumptuous, I suppose, for an audience or for the filmmakers to think they're getting that because they aren't. Uh, but nonetheless, you're getting something. And uh, what you find here, I think, is a real treasure. There's a lot, a lot to process, a lot to consider. And I can see why it was such a huge darling with critics, with audiences, when it premiered in 1994. Yeah, it's easy to understand why this is successful. I mean, sports in particular are hugely popular, obviously. I mean, I, March Madness is just a big, huge deal every year. Uh, I, I, I guess I was kind of caught off guard with how... Um, how high school sports were were treated almost as a an amateur pro phenomenon here. Maybe I'm just ignorant about how um, uh, about the stakes of high school sports nowadays, or even back in 1994. But wow, I mean, there was uh, pretty fanatical uh, fan following at these games. I don't know what your experience is with uh, with school sports, but that was. Um, uh, maybe it's just more the the inner city environment, and it's just more a, a cornerstone of that community. But I was I was pretty struck by um, by that in the film. I'm not a particularly athletic individual, as you well know, Matt. But uh, <laughs> I definitely I I did enjoy sports. I played them. I wasn't particularly good, and I would never be a varsity player, right? But I do remember my sophomore year of high school. Our team our high school went to state actually one state and i do recall when that buzz started to emerge how yeah. much it took over the school yeah. and how much it did consume people's lives and you can think about it when the twins because we're here in minnesota when they win the won the world series in 1991 that was everything to everybody at that time right yeah. and so people do become really engrossed in these things it's rather astonishing just how much they do uh so i think it it certainly does capture that well. Uh, and I think that's one of the real treasures of this is it does give us a sense of how these boys are being recruited, right? And uh, really how each of them is being weighed against uh, expectations, I suppose. Uh, you know, it's actually very fortuitous for the sake of the documentary that Arthur wound up leaving St. Joseph's because you get to see a real dichotomy as a result of that, right? Yeah. If he'd stayed there, we really have only gotten that sense of the one school. But because he gets sent away, you get to see two very different tracks emerge. You get to see how circumstances determine a lot of 
what's happening in life and then how we respond to them also determines them. Uh, so it, it's a fascinating c- consideration of just what's the relationship between uh, nature and nurture, right? Uh, and how our circumstances intervene in our lives and determine certain things and how our choices will also impact those circumstances. It's a fascinating study. And that's, I suppose, what I find most uh, beneficial about seeing this film is realizing that this is documenting some really complex things that are going on. Uh, maybe we can just focus in a little bit here on the two families, right? The Gates family and the Agee family. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, both poor families in bad neighborhoods, um, you know, sadly living with murder and drugs all around them. Uh, so we can see the Agee family, right? Uh, the, the father, Bo, just disappears at different points in time where he's just not around. Uh, that heartbreaking scene where he just shows up kind of out of nowhere and sees his son playing on the courts and then joins him and then just takes off after a little bit and goes to buy drugs. Yeah. Uh, and you're just thinking, good grief, what, what a horrible, heartbreaking thing to be your life. Yeah. Uh, and then seeing how easily Arthur could have gone down that road and his friend Shannon uh, goes down that road, right, and winds up going to jail at some point. And we, you know, we learn about all of these things. You see how devastating this is. Now, William winds up being able to get a scholarship and have a wealthy patron that keeps him at St. Joe's uh, through his time there and gets all this incredible treatment, right? Uh, I thought it was just fascinating how the... And this is, again, where a clear artistic decision is being made with some cross-cutting because uh, it wouldn't have been happening, I'm sure, simultaneously in real life. But Arthur uh, and what he's going through and the great uh, struggles he's facing with William having all this incredible medical treatment because of his his injured knee, right? Yeah, Going yeah. in for surgery and getting top-of-the-line treatment to help him because his coach really believes that this could be a great success for him, right? Could really help him get his team to state and could be the next Isaiah Thomas who had been at the school before as well. Uh, and seeing, again, Gates dealing with, uh, William's got to deal with, a lot of people trying to live through him. Uh, so his older brother, Curtis, never made it, uh, but supposedly it seemed had the talent to make it, but just made some decisions that prevented him from really getting where he could have gone in, in a career of basketball. Then trying to make William be him, right? His coach trying to make him be him. Meanwhile, Arthur doesn't really have a, a parent figure, a father figure, I should say. His mother is a very prominent figure, but doesn't have someone trying to force him to fulfill their dream that didn't come true. And seeing how that impacts the two of them. And then seeing how the coach at Marshall, uh, uh, his name being Luther Bedford, right? How he approaches things in a very different way uh, than uh, Gene Pingator does, right? And how they respond to these uh, young men. And uh, Luther Bedford seeming to be much more at peace with them and recognize maybe having just a greater understanding of their life and of their reality than Pingator does. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, just a fascinating thing to see how these circumstances and how people react to them unfield, unfold. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or if there's anything else in the film that was particularly striking to you. Well, that was a pretty good summary. I mean, there's there's clearly a, a lot of dimensions to this film. I mean, I guess it's not hard to understand why basketball and sports are so revered and in, in this environment, I mean the the opportunities afforded to these kids are 
are are fairly limited unfortunately and and in basketball you know athletics can be that ticket to to bigger and better things and, and opportunities they wouldn't otherwise have so um that level of obsession that we see in the film you know from a kid's standpoint it's just i want to be the next nba star you know it's wanting that goal uh, wanting that dream from a parental standpoint they see it as the ticket for a brighter future for their for their child but um there there's you know a level of selfishness there too even uh, among the, the parents to a point i mean william's dad kind of shows up out of nowhere um after many years uh after it appears that you know he may amount to something in athletics and um so it's hard to uh, to get people's true uh, motivations to to show themselves at times uh, but yeah, the the lack of, of father figures here w- was very striking to me, and and uh, that is definitely a consistent um, point here. That well, the coaches kind of become their their fathers in a way, right? But a coach can never truly be a father. I mean, a coach is a coach, and a coach can guide you and and, and help you in certain ways, but uh, cannot provide the you know emotional support that that a, a father that's there every day can provide but beyond that you know these coaches uh, having the contrast between the St. Joseph's coach and the uh, the Marshall coach I, I think was an important aspect of this film like you said the Marshall coach maybe just understands their circumstances a little bit better and I, I got the sense that um, coach Pinator who's kind of your classic uh, hardcore basketball coach right uh you know, maybe he sees these kids as more of a commodity in a way. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose we all see each other as a commodity to a point uh, in, in this kind of setting or in an academic setting or in an athletic setting. Um, but uh, be that as it may, the, the last scene between William and Coach Pinator, I thought, I mean, you really saw true care, I think, for, for each other. And and I, I do think both coaches wanted to see uh, their kids succeed for the right reasons. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, there's there's some heartbreaking stuff in this film, and there there's there are some scenes that are really tough to watch. Uh, but I'm glad the uh, the filmmakers didn't didn't really shy away from that uh, because it's it's important to to look at the entire scope of what's going on in these kids' lives and, and the kind of obstacles they have to overcome. But I, I think both Arthur and William, you know, showed pretty strong character at the end of the day. I mean, they, they both make bad decisions at various points in their lives and, and don't we all, but it's another thing that really struck me though, was just the message of personal responsibility that, you know, despite your circumstances, uh, there hopefully are still opportunities in your path and and it really comes down to are you going to make the most of those opportunities you know are you going to seize those opportunities and try to better yourself better your family uh your current family your future family or are you going to make decisions that that bring you down the wrong path so uh i think that's another important theme in the film that that the filmmakers are emphasizing so I guess those are some of the things that struck me. Would you say you took that as the the main theme, that sense of personal responsibility and 
uh, you know, making a path for yourself? What would you say you kind of took as that? Was that the theme or is there something more to it? Or what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, it's complicated. I mean, I, I think if I had to pick one, I, I think that's probably the most important message of the film, right? That it really does come down to, well, I mean, there's an old saying in sports that hustle beats talent any, any day of the week, right? So talent only gets you so far, but you got to put the work in. And, and whether that's working on your jump shot or getting that ACT score higher, even if you have ability, it still takes a lot of work to succeed and it still takes a commitment and, and a decision not to procrastinate, not to just get by. Uh, you have to, you have to put in the work and, and there will be times that you fail and that's, that's okay, you know, but you have to keep pushing forward. Um, despite what your circumstances may provide for you. And, and, you know, yeah, life, life is, I mean, life is full of tragedy and full of challenges and and full of suffering. And, and you have to decide if you're going to let those circumstances define you or if you're going to choose to transcend them. And, and I mean, God knows that there are people in worse, far worse circumstances than others, but I think we all have that opportunity to make that decision uh, to commit ourselves to something greater. Um, not to get on my soapbox here, but I think that's what the film's trying to say. And and again, I, I think that expressed itself organically through the events of the film. And I don't think the filmmakers are preaching in, in, in any way to to push that message. But I think it's it's pretty clear, you know, the where these uh, where Arthur and William end up ultimately are the result of choices they've made, um, and I think that's that's an important thing to consider. Yeah, I don't know exactly if I can settle in on what I think is the main theme or thrust of this work. Yeah, there there isn't just one, you know, but yeah. Right. I mean, to a certain extent, I suppose, when you look at anybody's life, to, there's a bit of a Rorschach going on here in the sense that we're going to, just like the documentarians themselves, pick out and select what it gets weighted as being important and what doesn't. Uh, and maybe that's the nature of a film like this, right? It, it's going to uh, reveal something of the audience and how we respond to it. That was actually, I think, very evident in the marketing of this film. Uh, it was edited or marketed on one way to white audiences and another way to black audiences. Hmm. Uh, and it was marketed as this inspirational true story, uh, you know, people rising up and, and beating the odds and dreaming for something more to the white audience. And uh, the black audience marketing, it didn't entirely have a different thought. It was certainly about getting off the streets, but it really was a much more fast paced and kind of, you know, really pushing uh, the basketball angle more than it was sort of this, this lofty abstract idea of, of achieving a dream. Right. So it's just, it's interesting how I think it does speak to the audience that's watching it, the person that's watching it and draw something out of us. Uh, You know, if I think of a theme, I think what you said is a perfectly valid way of taking this. I think everything you said about it, Matt, is there, but I don't know if I necessarily 
see it as focusing on that myself, I, if I look at it, I, I sort of see it as uh, certainly being about choices, right? Uh, but I guess I looked at it and thought about how choices are conditioned, right? And it, it really, I think, reflects that aspect. So uh, if you look at William, you know, his choices, he has certainly a great many options, right? Uh, there's tons of colleges that are considering him, but all of a sudden it's conditioned very much by what's happened to his his knee, right? He's had this injury. He's lost basically one of the four years that he had to play basketball. Yeah. When he comes back from his injury, he's not quite who he was before. He doesn't have the same kind of carefree. Uh, to what extent is his choice to go to Marquette based on, A, they're the ones that aggressively pursued him. They're the ones that did not wait to see how he did after uh, he recovered from his injury, right? Well, because others were saying, well, we're going to wait and see how you're playing in your senior year. Uh, so how much was his choice to go there and his decision to pursue that being based on the conditions of his life? Uh, so I mean, this, this is a fascinating point, right? Just what's the relationship between our free will and the world in which we find ourselves? Yeah. How much do we shape that world? How much does that world shape us? It's it's a two-way street, uh, no doubt. Uh, but I found that to be the big takeaway for me, right? That real consideration of our free will. But then again, you know, I'm approaching this film now as a person who has a pretty extensive background in philosophy and thinks about those kinds of things and was trained to, to examine those things and consider them, right? If I had watched this back in 94, did I think of any of that? No. I mean, I quite frankly did not. Uh, and when I saw it again a few years down the road in the late 90s as a, as a slightly older teenager, did I think of them in that time? No, I, I didn't. So I think that's maybe the success of this film, the strength of this film, is that it really does have the ability to speak to you regardless of your background, regardless of your stage in life. I think there's something about it because it's just documenting life not completely, but still, I think, honestly and accurately to what the extent that a documentary can. And that's something that's going to you're going to respond to another person's life. You can't not uh, if you're if you're going to be human about it. Right. If you have the least bit of empathy, least bit of sympathy. Yeah. You're going to respond to this film. Yeah. I, I don't want to make it sound like that, you know, uh, William and, and Arthur are entirely a product of their own decisions because yeah as you said the, the circumstances of of their surroundings and and choices by other family members certainly impact their lives and 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 there are you know tragic things that occur and that the knee injury obviously was not anticipated so yeah it's complicated um and and the film you know captures all that quite well well, maybe we could turn into you know, that just that capturing. We can segue from that into just the filmmaking itself. We've obviously talked a, a very minimal amount, really, considering how this conversation could go about the the re, the real life and the the themes, the ideas of this. But the the way in which it was filmed, I think, is pretty impressive. It's it certainly has some dated aspects. The the recording. Uh, the voiceover, I don't think you would probably do that in today's age where people are more used to this kind of documentary. So it was kind of a transition, I suppose, a little segue. But I think it works well. It helps certainly 
to understand the stakes of certain games that are being depicted because otherwise you wouldn't necessarily uh, appreciate the, what's really going on and yeah. how things uh, really matter. Uh, but uh, what are your take, just thoughts of the filmmaking itself as, as just a work of documentary? Well, I think it's way ahead of its time. I mean, um, I, I mean, the film's over 20 years old now, but it, it is pretty amazing how far technology has come. I mean, this is obviously shot on video, right? And, yes. and just the, the video quality, audio quality. I mean, it's kind of rough. It's kind of, from a production standpoint, it's kind of rough. Uh, but it's brilliantly edited, I think, in, in terms of how everything is, is put together uh, in, in such a way that really really keeps the momentum going. And I think you kind of have to have those bits of voiceover over the game segments because, like you said, you just wouldn't understand what's going on because you're not watching the whole game. And, um, you know, maybe there's a more elegant way to kind of present that, but uh, I think that worked fine. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's a very functional, it's a very functional style. And, and as I said before, it may seem kind of ordinary to people nowadays, but I think we have to recognize how different this probably seemed to audiences in the early nineties, uh, because, um, you know, its style is definitely very influential on, on films after it. It is definitely a landmark documentary in terms of the impact it had. And the, I think with American documentaries, there is sort of a before and after hoop dreams, uh, not just in terms of their exposure to the general public, but in terms of just how they're made. So you're right. It's ahead of its time. It's fantastic in that way. I do think there are, as you watch it, you can see how they themselves were growing as filmmakers. That's actually one of the things I do like about this. As you get to that senior year, they were more competent in what they were doing and had a better grasp of what was going on than in those early scenes from the freshman year, right? Yeah. Uh, just in terms of the technical uh, uh, you know, recording of the sound or in terms of just how they got coverage during the games, mm-hmm. they sort of had a greater sense of what they were doing. So there's something really great about that. Um, you know, I think... It works in terms of the editing. That's really where the film is made. I think with documentaries, that's really what's going to make or break most documentaries, right? And they managed to, through editing, craft a very sophisticated story uh, and really make it flow well as a feature-length film. So kudos to them, Reed, finding a way to make sense of how much, however many hours, I don't know how many hours they found, but you know, five years is a lot of time and hundreds and hundreds of days of shooting uh, when to make something that makes sense out of that is really impressive. And then to make something that works not only in terms of being able to be sensible, but to be emotionally important, to be uh, actually cinematic. I mean, it really does work much like a narrative film. There are beats within it, and it has a sense of plot progression as you go through four years of a person's life. It's really fantastic. So I have to say it is, a, I think, a really remarkable accomplishment on that. Um, in particular, the way they really challenged, I think, just the concept of what you can do with a documentary. Uh, it, it was a bold move on their part. So really great. Well, and the, with regard to the, uh, the film, I suppose maybe it's just worth uh, stopping here to say, are there any particular scenes that really caught your eye, my, uh, Matt, that you thought they really did a great job with? I, I guess I go back to that 
that last meeting between Coach Pinator and, and William, you know, I, you spoke to it earlier that there's kind of this tension there where uh, they clearly kind of butt heads from time to time during their experience together. Uh, but at the same time, there is kind of a father-son sort of dynamic there to a point. Uh, I think the coach... I just got a sense that he struggles probably with defining his role in the lives of his players. I, I mean, I got the sense that he truly cared for him, but at the same time he is grooming possibly the next Isaiah Thomas, right? So he has to balance um, any kind of fatherly instincts with, with, just the the rigor that comes from from coaching a high um a high-end athlete so uh, that that last discussion between the two of them i thought was was pretty uh pretty powerful and then when he walks out of the office uh the coach the coach kind of downplays it says well another one another one's gone another one be on his way you know so trying to kind of deflect maybe the emotion he was feeling in that moment uh, so that that scene stood out to me quite a bit. Yeah, and in that scene also, they they included a bit of a audio clip that I don't know if it was from a different interview or where they spliced it in there, but it's it's not him saying it on camera. You know, they they showed it as the two of them were kind of embracing and he was heading out, but he says, uh, Coach Pingator says that William had a good career, not a great career, right? Yeah, and is that again his sort of expressing this sort of well it didn't go quite right you know the injury impacted things things that didn't quite go they didn't get to state which he really wanted to get all the way down to the championship right so never got there right and so uh there is that that sense of is he trying to hide his own emotions a little bit here is he trying to uh to you know distance himself from it to a certain extent uh, because it's too painful for him to see this guy going, and it didn't quite go the way they expected it to, and the challenges, the heartbreak of, of the past years, right? So that was a very effective scene. The one that really struck me most of all, though, I think, is the scene with Arthur when he is uh, celebrating his 18th birthday. And you know, so it's very simple, right? Uh, mom, His mom, Sheila, makes a cake, and uh, they, the fact they're just celebrating that he made it to 18 years because a lot of boys don't. And you just think about that boy, you know, what that would be like to living that environment and the sense of accomplishment in just that, right? yeah. being able to, to turn 18. Uh, that one really stands out to me now. Uh, I don't know that as a kid when I saw the film, I could appreciate that or understand what that was really about. But now you're looking back, I do think, wow, that is in a sense more of an accomplishment than when the Marshall team goes and takes third place in the state tournament, right? That he made it to 18 and there was no, there was no reason to get, think he was going to be guaranteed to make it to 18. He realized what that family lives with. And it's all communicated so subtly. It's, it's not telegraphed. You just, because you've been with these people, you've been, uh, seeing their lives, however limited a view of it we get, you know, we just start to appreciate what that means to them, or what it means to a, to his mother to see her son turn 18 
and you realize, good grief, she had been living with this this whole time, never saying it, but thinking, my son could get killed. Yeah. Uh, and so that's just an incredible thing to, to witness. I guess just turning to the Criterion release, uh, I I have the Blu-ray. I assume, Matt, you probably watched this on Filmstruck. Is that right? Yep. Okay. So uh, I don't know what features they might have there on Filmstruck, but uh, the Blu-ray is really a great package. It Certainly sound-wise and uh, video-wise, I mean, there's only so much you can work with here. It is a newly restored uh, high-definition transfer and a 4.0 DTS sound mix on the Blu-ray. Uh, looks and sounds good for what it is, but there's only so much you can do with the original source material. Uh, but certainly I think they presented well. And I, I really like the supplements on this particular release. Uh, did you have a chance, Matt, as you watched it to, to take a look at any of the materials? Uh, most of them are on Filmstruck. Um, I, I didn't get a chance to watch them, but I, I kind of you know looked through them and saw it was available. And uh, it looks like there's a couple you know, full-length commentaries and uh, an updated kind of follow-up documentary. Uh, but I didn't get a chance to, to go through them. There's also a compilation of the Siskel and Ebert reviews about the movie. Yeah. So you have a wide variety of the, I think the two of them were probably its earliest champions that in no small part were part of its success, but just them talking about it at Sundance, talking about it when it made a theatrical premiere, talking about it as the best film of 1994. They, I was shocked just how worked up they got about it's not being nominated for best documentary at the Oscars. <laughs> I kind of thought, guys, it is, it is just a movie and the Oscars are just a, a scam I and mean, it's, it's okay to, to not uh, have it be nominated it'll live on on its own but it's, it is rather funny how incredibly passionate these two critics got about it and then he, uh, ebert actually listed it as the best film of the 1990s i had forgotten that he had done that yeah uh, so it uh, certainly resonated with that group uh right there so that was kind of interesting to see their reviews um there's a music video about it as well I would say I thought the the audio commentaries were very good. I highly recommend listening to them. Uh, the filmmaker one with Frederick Marx, Steve James, and Peter Gilbert was really great. Uh, you felt like you're just having a conversation with them. And I don't know, there's not too many audio commentaries I've heard that I think are better than theirs. They really just did a great job giving a sense of what they were doing and what else was going on that didn't quite make the cut in a given scene and you know, things that... They just talked about it in terms of their following up with the William and Arthur afterwards, too, because they stayed in touch following this. So it was really a great listen. And then the commentary by Arthur Agee and w- William Gates uh, was also good. Uh, it's, it's a very good documentary or excuse me, audio commentary as well. So I recommend that. And the follow-up documentary, Life After Hoop Dreams, about 40 minutes long, was also quite good. And I thought that was... Uh, uh, it's, it's very sad. I won't necessarily say anything here about it, but you see some great things that happen afterwards, some sad things that happen afterwards, uh, and you realize that you know the life kept going on afterwards, and uh, this this is not the only and even probably the most important time in these men's lives. Uh, very important part, but there's a lot that happens afterwards too. So uh, I would recommend, Matt, if you get a chance to to watch that documentary that followed up on their lives afterwards. Yeah, I'm curious to see that. Oh. Well, I guess we come to the end of our conversation now. So, Matt, does this belong in the Criterion Collection? I would probably already answered that. It's an easy yes. I mean, this is 
an extremely important classic American documentary. Um, definitely a, a no-brainer for inclusion. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's there's no way you could argue it shouldn't be in there, and I think it's great that they did get it in there. Um, not sure how they pulled it off, because I'd have thought that plenty of people would have wanted to release this, but uh, glad that Criterion got their hands on it. Glad they got the supplements to go along with it. So, yeah, it's a very... Very good uh, selection and definitely belongs there. It is truly a remarkable accomplishment in documentary filmmaking. And quite frankly, I think just in filmmaking in general, you could you could drop the documentary uh, moniker and you could just have this be as, a, as its own film, a truly impressive work. So, And thank you for listening to us tonight as we discussed Hoop Dreams. Please join us next month as we will discuss Akira Kurosawa's Redbeard which will premiere on the first Friday in April. Thank you, and have a good night. Uh, so you're right. There's, those are those, uh, those features there. There's also um, a, a compliment... compliment, uh, compliment Oh great! I can't even get the word out. <laughs> now I'm just, now I'm just stuck. <laughs> just compilation. There we go. Yeah. So there's a 